John Keats, The Eve of St. Agnes. John Keats's The Eve of St. Agnes was written in 1819 and set on St. Agnes Eve, traditionally thought to be one of the coldest nights of the year. St. Agnes was the patron saint of virgins, and it was believed that this night had magical properties. If a maiden went to bed without any supper and observed various rituals, which will, are described in the poem, she would dream of her future husband. The poem is a chivalric romance with some Gothic overtones. There is a castle setting in the past, probably in the medieval era, and there is a kind of framing as the story is framed by the present and encloses an even more distant past. There are references to armor, of knights, tapestries, and to mythic figures such as Merlin. Another way the story is framed, unusually, is through heat and cold imagery. It's a tale of warmth encompassed by cold. The coldest day of the year encloses a layer of revelry that in turn encloses the young lovers. By being set in a distant past from which we suddenly pull back in the final stanza, the poem sidesteps the issue of the future happiness of the lovers. The poem is very sensuous, appealing to most of the senses, so much so that Keats had some difficulty with his publishers who objected to some of the stanzas. It's a very visual poem, even cinematic at times. As I'll point out, there are places in the poem where it's as if a camera is gazing at Madeline. For example, seeing the moonlight filtered through the stained glass spilling upon her form. There are also many sound references, not the least of which are the very lush sounds of the exotic foods described in stanza 29, and there are moments of synesthesia. The poem is written in Spenserian stanzas after Edmund Spenser, the 16th century poet. There are nine line stanzas with eight iambic pentameter lines closed with a hexameter or six-foot line that is called an alexandrine. The rhyme scheme is ABA, BBC, BCC. The poem also provides a dialectic of the real and unreal. For example, the representation of the woman versus the real woman in the moonlight scene in stanza 25, the dream Porphyro versus the real man, and the scene of the lovers gliding like phantoms as they escape, real lovers emulating the unreal. We begin in stanzas 1 and 2. St. Agnes Eve Ah, bitter chill it was, the owl, for all his feathers was a cold. The hare limped trembling through the frozen grass, and silent was the flock in woolly fold. Numb were the beadsman's fingers while he told his rosary, and while his frosted breath, like pious incense from a censer old, seemed taking flight for heaven without a death, past the sweet virgin's picture, while his prayer he saith. His prayer, he saith, this patient, holy man, then takes his lamp and riseth from his knees, and back returneth meager, barefoot, wan, along the chapel aisle by slow degrees. The sculpture dead on each side seemed to freeze, imprisoned in black purgatorial rails. Knights, ladies, 
praying in dumb oratories, he passeth by, and his weak spirit fails to think how they might ache in icy hoods and males. This reference to the sculptured dead in the chapel seems to invoke the deeper past. The beadsman's task seems to be to pray in the chapel for the salvation of the ancestors. At length, we hear some sounds of revelry coming from a distance, and then in the sixth stanza, we first meet Madeline, the heroine of the poem. They told her how, upon St. Agnes' Eve, young virgins might have visions of delight and soft adorings from their loves receive upon the honeyed middle of the night. If ceremonies do, they did aright. As supperless to bed, they must retire, and couch supine their beauties, lily white, nor look behind, nor sideways, but require of heaven with upward eyes for all that they desire. Full of this whim was thoughtful Madeline. Madeline was a name thought to have been derived from Magdalene. So we have had the ritual described. The young virgins are supposed to go to bed without eating and to go to bed without looking sideways or behind. There are more sounds of revelry, and then we meet Porphyro in stanza nine. So, purposing each moment to retire, she lingered still. Meantime, across the moors had come young Porphyro, with heart on fire for Madeline. Beside the portal doors, buttressed from moonlight, stands he, and implores all saints to give him sight of Madeline. But for one moment, in the tedious hours, that he might gaze and worship all unseen, perchance speak, kneel, touch, kiss, in sooth, such things have been. There follow some stanzas that are reminiscent of the Romeo and Juliet story. For example, Porphyro is not welcome in the castle, and he is helped by an old beldam, or aged nurse, reminiscent of the nurse in Romeo and Juliet, who has taken a liking to Porphyro and does what she can to help the young lovers. Porphyro asks Angela, the old nurse, to help him get a glimpse of Madeline. In stanza 17, he says, I will not harm her by all saints, I swear, quoth Porphyro. Oh, may I ne'er find grace when my weak voice shall whisper its last prayer, if one of her soft wrinklets I displace, or look with ruffian passion in her face. Good Angela, believe me by these tears, or I will, even in a moment's space, awake with horrid shout my foeman's ears and beard them though they be more fanged than wolves and bears. And so Angela secretly leads him, in stanza 19, to Madeline's chamber, which was to lead him in close secrecy even to Madeline's chamber, and there hide him in a closet of such privacy that he might see her beauty unespied, and win perhaps that night a peerless bride while legioned fairies paced the coverlet, and pale enchantment held her sleepy-eyed. Never on such a night have lovers met, since Merlin paid his demon all the monstrous debt. Angela has led Porphyro into a small room where he can gaze at Madeline unseen. There follow some very descriptive passages, full of heraldic imagery, genealogical emblems on stained glass. Reading from stanza 24, 
A casement, high and triple-arched there was, all garlanded with carven imageries of fruits and flowers and bunches of knotgrass, and diamonded with panes of quaint device, innumerable of stains and splendid dyes, as are the tiger-moth's deep damasked wings, and in the midst among thousand heraldries and twilight saints and dim emblazonings, a shielded scutcheon blushed with blood of queens and kings. Full on this casement shone the wintry moon and threw warm jewels on Madeline's fair breast. Jewels, by the way, G-U-L-E-S, is the heraldic color for red. As down she knelt for heaven's grace and boon, rose bloom fell on her hands, together pressed, and on the silver cross soft amethyst, and on her hair a glory like a saint. She seemed a splendid angel, newly dressed save wings for heaven. Porphyro grew faint. She knelt so pure a thing, so free from mortal taint. This stanza depicts the moonlight shining through the stained glass window and falling upon her, making her seem like an angel or a saint. So we have the real woman overlaid by the idealized one. And then in a very voyeuristic stanza, Porphyro is watching while she looses her garments. Anon his heart revives, her vespers done, of all its wreathed pearls, her hair she frees, unclasps her warmed jewels one by one, loosens her fragrant bodice, by degrees her rich attire creeps rustling to her knees, half hidden, like a mermaid in seaweed, pensive a while she dreams awake and sees in fancy fair St. Agnes in her bed, but dares not look behind, or all the charm is fled. Porphyro waits until her breathing indicates that she has gone to sleep. Then by the bedside, where the faded moon made a dim silver twilight, soft he set a table, and half-anguished threw thereon a cloth of woven crimson gold and jet. Oh, for some drowsy Morphean amulet! The boisterous midnight festive clarion, the kettle drum and far-heard clarinet affray his ears, though but in dying tone. The hall door shuts again, and all the noise is gone. You hear the distant sounds of revelry as the hall door has opened and closed in the distance. In stanza 30, we have a stanza with the very rich sounds of exotic sweets that he has provided for her. And still she slept, an azure-lidded sleep in blanched linen, smooth and lavendered, while he from forth the closet brought a heap of candied apple, quince, and plum, and gourd, with jellies soother than the creamy curd, and lucent syrups tinct with cinnamon, manna and dates in argosy transferred, from fez and spiced dainties every one, from silken samarkand to cedared Lebanon the sounds of exotic sweets and delicacies from far away. Continuing, these delicates he heaped with glowing hand on golden dishes and in baskets bright of wreathed silver, sumptuous they stand in the retired quiet of the night, filling the chilly room with perfume light. That reference here to perfume light is one of the synesthetic references in the poem. 
Porphyro then takes up a lute and begins to play for Madeline. He played an ancient ditty, long since mute, in Provence called La Belle Dame Sans Merci. That is also the name of a poem by Keats. And this causes Madeline to awaken, and we have some fascinating stanzas here at the heart of the poem as her dream gives way to reality. Her eyes were open, but she still beheld, now wide awake, the vision of her sleep. There was a painful change that nigh expelled the blisses of her dream so pure and deep, at which fair Madeline began to weep and moan forth witless words with many a sigh. While still her gaze on Porphyro would keep, who knelt with joined hands and piteous eye, fearing to move or speak, she looked so dreamingly. Ah, Porphyro, said she, but even now thy voice was at sweet tremble in mine ear, made tunable with every sweetest vow, and those sad eyes were spiritual and clear. How changed thou art, how pallid, chill, and drear. Give me that voice again, my Porphyro, those looks immortal, those complainings dear. Oh, leave me not in this eternal woe, for if thou diest, my love, I know not where to go. Evidently, Madeline was dreaming of Porphyro and awakens to find him there, so there is some confusion as to whether she is dreaming or awake, but know that there is also a hint of regret. The ideal Porphyro of her dream is in some ways superior to the real Porphyro when she observes, how changed thou art, how pallid, chill, and drear, give me that voice again my Porphyro. In stanza 36, we read the most erotic stanza of the poem and the one about which Keats really battled with his publishers. Beyond a mortal man impassioned far, at these voluptuous accents he arose, ethereal, flushed, and like a throbbing star seen mid the sapphire heaven's sweet repose, into her dream he melted, as the rose blendeth its odor with the violet, solution sweet. Meantime, the frost wind blows like love's alarm, pattering the sharp sleet against the window panes. St. Agnes's moon hath set. Tis dark, quick patterneth the flaw-blown sleet, this is no dream, my bride, my Madeline. Tis dark, the iced gusts still rave and beat. No dream, alas. Alas, and woe is mine. Porphyro will leave me here to fade and pine. Cruel, what traitor could thee th hither bring? I curse not, for my heart is lost in thine. Though thou forsakest a deceived thing, a dove forlorn and lost with sick, unpruned wing. In the stanza in which they apparently make love, there is a very cinematic moment when the camera seems to pull back from the scene of the two lovers as into her dream he melted to the pattering of the sleet on the windows like love's alarm. In stanza 38, Porphyro answers Madeline's complaint. My Madeline, sweet dreamer, lovely bride, say may I be for I thy vessel blessed Thy beauty's shield, heart-shaped and vermeil dyed. Ah, silver shrine, here will I take my rest after so many hours of toil and quest. A famished pilgrim, saved by miracle, 
though I have found I will not rob thy nest, saving of thy sweet self, if thou thinkest well to trust fair Madeline to no rude infidel. This stanza is noteworthy for the spiritual imagery in which he refers to himself as a pilgrim on a quest who has been saved by a miracle, the miracle of her love, and that she will not be trusted to a rude infidel. So from the passion of their lovemaking, the poet moves into a spiritual dimension. And so they leave. In stanza 40, she hurried at his words, beset with fears, for there were sleeping dragons all around at glaring watch, perhaps with ready spears. Down the wide stairs, a darkling way they found. In all the house was heard no human sound. A chain-drooped lamp was flickering by each door. The arras, rich with horsemen, hawk and hound, fluttered in the besieging wind's uproar, and the long carpets rose along the gusty floor. They glide like phantoms into the wide hall, like phantoms to the iron porch they glide, where lay the porter in uneasy sprawl, with a huge empty flagon by his side. The wakeful bloodhound rose and shook his hide, but his sagacious eye an inmate owns. By one and one the bolts full easily slide, the chains lie silent on the foot-worn stones, the key turns, and the door upon its hinges groan. And so they glide into the hall, past the porter who has passed out, and the dog does not bark because he recognizes them, or at least recognizes Madeline. There are a lot of references here to bolts and chains and keys and hinges, things that make noise. And then the final stanza of the poem, And they are gone, I, ages long ago, these lovers fled away into the storm. That night the baron dreamt of many a woe, and all his warrior guests, with shade and form of witch and demon and large coffin worm, were long benightmared. Angela the old died. Palsy twitched with meager face to form. The beadsman after a thousand aves told, for I unsought for slept among his ashes cold. So here's where Keats suddenly pulls back and pushes the action into the distant past. We leave the lovers at the moment of their escape and we never find out what happens to them. Interestingly, the guests in the castle all have bad dreams of witches and demons and the worms of the grave. And then the sudden final image of Angela dying, palsy twitching, and the beadsman dead among the ashes. So we have had a sudden shift in a single stanza from the moment of the lover's escape to ages afterward, representing also an abrupt shift from the world of romance to reality. John Keats, The Eve of St. Agnes.